a very bright shining light, Sarajevo, and they needed to kill that light. From producers Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, explore how art and music sustained hope during the siege of Sarajevo, thanks in part to humanitarians and the band U2. U2, they represent a personification of our resistance. The Hollywood Reporter hails Kiss the Future, moving and inspirational. Kiss the Future! Viva Sarajevo! Kiss the Future. New documentary now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Go to Paramount Plus to try it free. Terms apply. Welcome to another podcast from InsideCarolina.com, the independent voice of UNC Sports. Brought to you by JohnnyTShirt.com, the go to provider for all your Tar Heel gear. I'm your host, Tommy Ashley, listening to the Inside Carolina podcast sponsored by JohnnyTShirt.com. Doing a little different today. If you're listening on iTunes, same thing as normal. You'll get our full podcast here, Johnny T-shirt sponsored podcast. But if you're checking us out on YouTube, uh, you'll see all of us. We got Ross Martin, and we've got a special guest. So I'm gonna kick Ross to introduce our special guest, and we'll get this thing rolling. Ross. Yeah. So today we're gonna bring on Jawad Williams. Obviously played at, at UNC for four years and was on was a senior on the 2005 national championship team and we started talking because Jawad was um tweeting about the Carolina family and the the, the next coach once once Roy retires and we started DMing about that and so I thought it'd be great to bring him on and just talk on a bunch of wide-ranging topics we're going to touch on everything from the 8 and 20 season the uh up to the the national championship in 2005 what he's doing now all his international play i think if i read right on wikipedia you've been playing for 16 different international teams through your career we're going to touch on that um and then get into yeah the kind of family and, and how he wants uh, how jawad wants unc to approach uh like the next step once once coach roy williams retires so we're gonna dive right in it and, and first of all what's going on jawad not much, man. You know, just dealing with this quarantine life uh, hasn't been that bad. It's been actually kind of fun for me. You know, I'm usually out of the country 10 months out of the year. So I got to uh, come home a little bit early and spend time with my family. And I'm enjoying it, actually. I mean, my kids want to get out, but I'm enjoying it. Yeah, so where were you before all this this happened? I was in Japan. Uh, I was in a city called Utsunomiya, which is about 45 minutes from Tokyo. Um, I actually came home in February for my birthday, stayed for about a week. Flew back to Tokyo, and then that's when everything, you know, kind of hit the fan, and uh, they shut us down for a couple weeks. Uh, we had a two-week delay, came back. We attempted to play two games. We played uh, every Saturday, Sunday. We attempted to play two games. First game was successful. Second game, they had to call it. One of our referees ended up uh, popping up with a fever, and, you know, it was just scared it might be an outbreak again, so we shut it down, and then eventually they canceled our season altogether. Nice. So you're just kind of hanging out and, and waiting to see what happens and spend time with family and, and working out and things like that. Is that kind yeah. of what you're doing? Yeah, yeah. Right now, that's all I'm doing. I'm just working out every day, every morning, uh, sitting here and spending time with the family. That's it. Great. Let's go back to, you know, your recruitment and what brought you to UNC. Um, can you kind of tell us a little about how that recruitment went? I mean, you're a pretty highly recruited guy, uh, a lot of different offers, obviously. What schools were you interested in and what ultimately was um, – what what made you and see the pick back there? What two thousand one was your class? Two thousand. Yep. Two thousand. Yep, one. Well, my final five came down to Carolina, Duke, Maryland, Carolina, Duke, Maryland, Cincinnati, and uh, Florida. Those were my final five. 
Uh, I actually committed to Maryland. And then Coach Doherty took the job at UNC. He gave me a call because he was at Notre Dame at the time. He gave me a call, and I told him I would never go to Notre Dame because it was like going to an all boys school that I just graduated from, St. Network. And then when he got the UNC job, he was like, uh, think you'll change your mind now? And I was like, yeah, we could possibly make that happen. But, um, yeah, so my first pick was Maryland. Then I backed out of that commitment and ended up signing at UNC. But Coach Guthridge was actually the person who started my recruitment to Carolina. That's a, that's a, a great story there. Um, let me tell you my Jawad Williams story and see if you remember this. So the McDonald's All-American game was in Cameron your senior year. Mm-hmm. And uh, J.B. Sissel, the late J.B. Sissel, and I covered that game. And we're down there on the floor. And this younger guy's out there, um, happened to be Ray Felton. And he's talking to us or whatever. And um, nobody knew who he was. I mean, nobody had a clue who Ray Felton was. And he said, let's keep it that way for now. I said, well, it's not going to last long. And then post-game media comes and you walk over to us and you got cotton and everything stuffed up your nose. Um, I believe, who was it that broke your nose or popped you that? Uh, DeWine Wagner. Yeah, I remember <laughs> that. And uh, so we talked to you with the cotton up your nose and you told me there, you said, I'm never losing in this building. And we all laughed and you know, took you seriously somewhat. It didn't turn out that way. Um, talk about going into your first season at Carolina, the expectations that you guys had um, and how it all came down to what it ended up to be that first year. Well, my expectations, you know, once you sign at a place like Carolina, I'm expecting to go to Final Fours and win championships almost every year. And uh, like I said, I backed out of my commitment to Maryland. I go to UNC and we go 8-20. and 20. And Maryland wins the national championship that year. So, you know, throughout the season, I'm having mixed emotions. Like, am I in the place that I should be? Like, did I make a mistake by coming here? You know, it, it was a tough, it was a tough time. Uh, but, you know, grace of God, my family and my friends, I was able to stick it out and uh, it turned out for the best. But that's, that kind of set the tone for what, this, for what the rest of my career at UNC was going to be because I already hit the bottom. The only way you can go from there is up. Do you do you feel like that season was a blessing, sort of in disguise? Maybe, obviously not during it. Uh, it had, it had its it had its moments. I learned a lot that year. You know, I came in, like you said, highly recruited. So I had expectations for myself that kind of got shut down a little bit. You know, I came in expecting like, hey, I'm gonna go ahead, average fifteen to twenty points, and I'm out as a freshman. And then you know, it kind of slowed me down. Uh, that first year, I was like, I can't come in and go out like that, you know, especially I didn't play the way I wanted to play, to play the way I was capable of playing. And it just made me mature a lot faster than I thought I would have to. And I ended up being a captain on the team as a sophomore. And then after that, you know, my maturity process kind of picked up and I had to be the mature guy because I had seen so much from the beginning. I asked this to a lot of, of players at UNC you're under such a microscope and you're, it's a national team and everyone knows you on campus and everyone knows you in the state of North Carolina. What was it like going through the eight and 20 season with, with so much pressure from fans and, and students and, and media and just cause everyone talks about the eight twenty season and, and kind of, you know, what happened this year with UNC kind of relates to that. It was just kind of a, can you kind of talk about what, what that was like? It wasn't that bad. It wasn't like, uh, it wasn't like it is now where kids are under the eye of social media. Yeah. Um, we didn't have to deal with outside opinion so much. You know, if we dealt with anything, it was face-to-face. And 
when you're face to face with somebody, they really don't have much, too much negative to say to you. You know, nobody's really that, that tough behind, you know, when they're not behind a keyboard. So we're not, we didn't have to deal with a whole lot. We kind of stuck to ourselves, which is normal because, you know, when you, you're our athlete at UNC, you don't have much time for a social life. You know, that is your life, basketball and books. That's what we did. So we didn't really have to experience too much. Okay, then after your sophomore season, Matt Doherty gets fired and Roy Williams comes in. What was that transition like for you? Um, obviously, Doherty recruited you. Uh, can you go into kind of that transition and, and then welcoming in Roy and what that was like from your perspective? Uh, it was tough at first. I hit another crossroad of like, should I just leave? Um, you know, coach, it was weird because I was recruited by every school in the country except for Kansas. And that was weird. And we addressed that once they got there. I talked to Coach Holiday about it. And he was like, well, we didn't recruit you because we knew we didn't have a chance. You're from Cleveland. We had, we knew we weren't coming to Lawrence, Kansas. I was like, you're right. But still, I didn't get a letter or anything, a phone call. So we addressed that right away. And then I still hit a crossroads of, should I be here? Should I stay here and, you know, go through this transition process? But once again, I, I was reminded that I, I don't run from anything. So I stood there and, uh, you know, worked out. What was so the when, when, Ross, ahead, let me chime ahead. in there just yeah, yeah. briefly. What was the difference between Coach Darty's approach and Coach Williams' approach? We've heard all the stories, whatever. But as far as coaching basketball, what was the difference? Uh, it wasn't that big of a difference. It was more so managing egos. That was our biggest problem uh, for that team. We had so much talent at every position, and everybody wanted to be the man. Uh, Coach Williams came in and did a great job of helping us to manage our egos and keeping everything and making sure it was a team-oriented game as opposed to you do what you do and then you do yours. And, you know, it didn't work like that. We kind of bought – we had to buy into, you know, everybody's going to average somewhere between 10 to 15 points and we'll be successful, and it worked. Yeah, so that, those teams were loaded. I mean, it was, it was you, um, when Marvin Scott, uh, Jackie Manuel, and then, of course, Rashad McCann, Sarah Felton, Sean May, David Noel – eventually Marvin Williams. What was it like playing with all those talented players? You kind of alluded to that. Uh, what stood out from those guys and playing with those guys? It must have been incredible, the talent you all had on that, you know, 2002, 2003, or 03, 04, then 04, 05 teams. Uh, the biggest thing was how competitive we were. You know, because we were so talented, there were times where Coach Williams was just – we would have practice and he would split the teams up and let us just go at it. And he would stand on the sideline and watch it. And – you know, those those were the days that made us better, you know, and, and the summertime was super competitive. I mean, drop the ball, almost fighting competitive. And sometimes there were fights and that's what we needed to get to the next level. You know, when you got that much talent on one team, you have to, you know, establish a hierarchy and figure out what we all do best together. And uh, we were able to do that. I had a question. J.R. Smith was recruited to, to UNC in that Marvin Williams class. Do you remember his recruitment at all? Yeah, I was his host. Uh, I was his host. <laughs> I'm still, I'm, I'm still pretty close to Jr. I talk to him quite often. You know, we all consider Jr. a Tar Heel. We know for sure if, you know, if he didn't have a good game in that McDonald's game, he would have been a Tar Heel with us. And, you know, and even besides Jr., James John Curry. James John was yeah. not from the beginning to come to Carolina. He was another super talented guy. And, you know, he had his unfortunate situation. But uh, if we would have had a – that team wouldn't have had – I don't know what would have happened. That's too much talent on one team at some point. Yeah, so that was my freshman class. So it would have been Quentin Thomas, uh, James Allen Curry, J.R. Smith, and Marvin Williams. 
and eventually it just became Williams and uh, and Quentin Thomas. Um, yeah, the 2005 run. I mean, what was that like? I think you only lost four games the whole year. Um, you were kind of the favorite, at least one of the favorites the whole year. Can you kind of dive into just kind of that experience, and then we'll get a little more into the to that tournament run. Well, going into the season, we had the mindset of championship or bust. Um, we all came in. We, we literally had a meeting with each other, and we said nobody is going to be left behind. Because after my junior year, I thought about leaving again, this time declaring to the NBA. But I had so many concussions. My head wasn't right. Like, I literally had a little bit of memory loss and things like that. So I wasn't physically ready to go. Um, you know, everybody flirted with the NBA draft process. We're thinking about it. And then we just decided to meet up one day. I can't remember where we ate. Might have ate somewhere near Franklin Street. And uh, we kind of just said, nobody's going to be left behind. Let's go ahead and win everything. And then we're getting out of here. And then the way that we lost four games, which is true. Uh, but of those four games, we never felt like anybody beat us. It was always like, what did we do wrong? We felt like we were too good to be beat by anybody. So if anybody did beat us, it was something we did, not something they did. Yeah, and one thing, Tommy, before you dive in here, uh, with Marvin Williams in, because y'all kind of – you started, but y'all kind of rotated a lot your position. What was that kind of work? I know Marvin's a great guy, so I'm sure it was seamless. But transitioning him into the lineup, because he was a very talented player, but he never started a single game for y'all. Um, it wasn't It wasn't that hard. You know, I think yeah. uh, when Marvin came in, I kind of – I knew that he was, you know, at Carolina, there's always going to be somebody coming right behind you. There's always going to be another McDonald's All-American coming in to try to take your spot. So I was willing to help Marvin, but at the same time, I had to let Marvin know who I was too. You know, he came in yeah. McDonald's All-American, so did I. He came in top 10 in the nation, so did I. So I had to remind him, you know, who I was. I had to remind a lot of people who I was. And uh, we, we were able to work out, and Coach Williams did a great job of managing our minutes. We all played around that 20-minute mark, so we would just play together, and there was no issues. Everybody was happy. You mentioned that with Marvin coming in, but you also earlier mentioned the hierarchy on the team. Tell us about that. Uh, you had a lot of talent. Um, you guys were there for 8 and 20, and then Coach Williams or Coach Darty brought in Rashad and Ray and all those guys. Just tell me about the hierarchy in 2005, just out of well, curiosity to know. I think uh, the hierarchy and I think my teammates would pretty much agree. It, it, be, it started with me uh, because I was the, the McDonald's guy who came in before everybody else, the highly recruited guy came before everybody else. I had took my lumps already and uh, everybody else kind of just fell in line. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's like a, a wolf pack. You know, I hate to use that term. You know, <laughs> you know, you have to have a leader. And uh, being that I had took my lumps already and, you know, I was still working every day. I led by example more so than I did with my words, and I feel like everybody kind of just fell in place, and I'm pretty sure my teammates will, you know, attest to that. Do you think looking at today's game, and I want to talk about 2005, but in today's game with the, the one and done and the freshmen or, you know, getting better and better, do you think it's changed a lot? Um, and do you think Coach Williams has changed any as far as what you've been able to see currently? I think it's changed a lot. Um, you're not going to win any championships with freshmen, you know, leading your team. Very rarely. I take that back. Very rarely. We have seen it before with Carmelo Anthony. But I think you have to have a great mix of veterans and young guns to come in if you really want to win. Um, and, you know, with this, <clears throat> the one and dones and things like that, I, I think it's, it's affected the game. Uh, I would prefer that guys didn't have to go to school for one year um, because it, it takes away from guys who really want to be in school. 
some guys are just like, um, let, me, let me go do this because I have to, not because I want to. You know, like Marvin wanted to go to school. Then you got guys who come in now who have no plans on going to, who had no plans on going to school. They just want to, you know, speed up the process of getting to the NBA. And I think it kind of hurts the game. But, uh, yeah, it's always a mix of veterans and, and young guys if you want to win a championship. Indeed. It's fascinating to watch how, you know, we still talk about Carmelo Anthony, and he's old. He's gotten old, and that was a long time ago. And, uh, you know, you still got to have those seniors. Let me take a second to talk about Johnny T-Shirt right fast. Um, if you're listening to this podcast, you know that Johnny T-Shirt's our sponsor. They're great friends of Inside Carolina. They're great friends of Carolina fans. If you've got Carolina gear, chances are you got it from Johnny T-Shirt com or Johnny T-shirt on Franklin Street. Visit them online, especially these days with the quarantine. Jawad talked about how tough the quarantine is for us regular folks. Well, if you've got a small business, then Johnny T-shirt's the one you need to be supporting. They're on Franklin Street, of course, but Johnny T-shirt.com gets you everything you need. And also, if you're an Inside Carolina Premium subscriber, you get 10% off your everyday order at Johnny T-shirt. Visit them online, in person when you can. Many thanks to Johnny T-Shirt for being the sponsor. Now let me continue this short break with words from our other sponsors. We'll be right back after the break. The baseball season is in full swing, which means you need to listen to Fantasy Baseball Today, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network. Join Scott White, Chris Towers, and me, Frank Stample, every weekday as we recap every player from every game. We'll talk waiver wire ads, drops, players to trade for, prospects who could make an impact, and everything in between. Make sure to download and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Odyssey app, and everywhere else podcasts are found. Hello, everyone. It's Michael Richards here. You might have seen me on CBS working on their Champions League coverage over the last couple of years. I wanted to tell you about an exciting new podcast that I've been working on. It's called The Rest is Football. It's me, alongside Gary Lineker and Alan Shearer, two absolute legends of the game. The show combines topical debate from the world of soccer along with outrageous tales from our careers. And I mean, outrageous. Just search The Rest is Football wherever you get your podcasts. All the best from Big Meats. Okay, welcome back to the Inside Carolina Podcast. I am Tommy Ashley. got Ross Martin and our special guest, Jawad Williams. Jawad, let me get to back to the 2005 run. Um, you said championship or bust. So when I talk to Dewey Burke a lot on these podcasts, he always talks about when you're a senior, the finality of it all. And you realize, especially when you get to tournament time, it can be over. One bad game and it's done. Mm-hmm. Talk about leading into that tournament. You guys were um, either one or two. I know Illinois was good that year. Uh, but talk about the mood going into the NCAA tournament. Let's back up. First, we go to – we win the ACC outright by beating Duke on Marvin's big shot. Um, I think that night kind of set the tone for what we had coming up next. Um, Simple, it's small things. Like Coach Williams came to me and told, tried to give me the net uh, from the game. I told him I didn't want it. And he, you know, of course he asked why. I was like, I'll wait till after we win the championship. I'll take that net. You know, we started to plan ahead. We knew what we wanted to do. You know, winning the ACC tournament was cool. We, and I remember Coach Williams said, well, we have to go to the ACC tournament. We can't just skip it. But I don't feel like it was it was uh, in our plans to go win. You know, we went out there and we ended up losing, what, semifinals or something like that. Mm-hmm. But once again, it wasn't like 
it was kind of like we wanted to speed up the process to get to the big dance and that was our whole thing and then when we get to the ncaa tournament during the acc tournament this is why i hated the acc tournament uh the game that we lost i had a severe pull of my hip flexor so during the whole ncaa tournament i'm trying to rehab and play at the same time which was tough and I didn't get hit. Luckily, we kept winning and advancing. So I, by the time we hit Michigan State game, I'm finally fully healthy and I can play without the protective tights and everything like that. And, um, you know, that whole process was, it was fun. You know, we took it, most guys, we go to the four, final four banquet and everybody's sitting there with the stone face, staring at each other, like everybody's tough. And we sitting there, we laughing, we joking, we having fun with each other. And we're like, that's exactly why they're gonna lose tomorrow because they feel like they're tougher than us. You know, we knew how good we were, we knew how tough we were, but we didn't take, we didn't take ourselves too seriously. And that's what, I think that's what separated us in that tournament. What was the toughest game in that tournament? Was it Nova? Yes, for sure. They went small and we like, oh yeah, we're gonna punish them on the block. They went too fast for us. They had Randy Ford, yeah, Randy Foy, Alan Ray, uh, Kyle Lowry. Yeah. You know, they had two bigs down there who were blocking shots and rebounding. So they were very talented. And, uh, you know, they used that small ball to their advantage. That was the Elite Eight, right? Yes. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what was it like? I mean, you know, winning the national championship and that final four, you know, run when you finally cut down the nets and beat Illinois to, to win um, – Coach Roy's you know, first championship. What was that feeling like? And obviously going from the eight and 20 season to that for you, but just uh, and going full circle for, for UNC in that period. Um, it was finally a chance to breathe. You know, like we, we seen the bottom and uh, we made a, we made a pact with each other to, we were going to go out on top. And, you know, after we won myself, Jackie Manuel and uh, Melvin Scott, we got together and put our arms around each other and, you know, we said a prayer, took a deep breath, and we just talked with each other for a minute on the court. Um, that was a very special moment for us because we had been through it all. Like, we had been through it all. We we watched the program crumble under us, and we watched us – we built it back up. And uh, so that was a very special moment for us. And, you know, Coach Williams winning his first championship was great, but for us it was, you know, who, not many people could say they went from the absolute bottom to the top like we did. Tell me about – Earning a seat at the table. How important is that at the Carolina family? Um, it's pretty important. Uh, it's pretty important. Like that, we can have a conversation that most people don't understand. Uh, you know, we talk about championships and winning your last game as a college athlete. Not many can say they've done that. And uh, there's a, quite a few guys in our in our family who say they have done that. With, with that 2005 team, I mean, it was so talented. What was it like? playing with some of them. I mean, can you kind of go into the how good this team was in terms of you had Sean May, you had yourself, Marvin Williams, and Sean McCants. You get into like details on, on just how talented some of those guys were and, and your team in general and, and how why it worked so much that year. Um, the it worked because we were we were selfless. Uh, we were selfless. We understood the type of season Sean was having. So everybody was like, all right, let's just get a ball to Sean and we'll fill in the blanks. You know, like Sean carried us at last, say two, three months of the season. You know, yeah. we were, it was okay with us. It was fine. Like, I think it might've been Wisconsin game where we're going through a tough time and we're trying to, I remember Coach Williams sitting in the huddle, he's trying to figure out a play and Melvin Scott interrupts the huddle and was like, coach, I got to play. 
And everybody looked at Melvin like, come on, Melvin, here we go. Melvin was the jokester of the team. So he's like, I got I to gotta play. He's like, what you got, Melvin? And he was like, get the ball to the big fella and get the hell out the way. <laughs> and then Coach Williams was like, all right, let's run that. Let's get the ball to the big fella. And we went out there, gave the ball to Shine. He scored. We won. So we good. But uh, that was the type of team we had. You know, Melvin was a guy who went through a lot. Super talented. But, you know, he was overshadowed by Rashad and everybody else in his position. Uh, he was a small two-guard at the time. But, um, you know, that was just a prime example of being selfless. You know, let's get the ball to a big guy and everybody else fill in the blanks. And that's what we did. Yeah, I know there's been a lot of drama with Rashad McCants in the last 10 years or so. But what was it like playing with Rashad? I know he's an interesting personality. I mean, I've never met the guy. And you, you have an intimate knowledge of, of that guy, of, of Rashad. Well, I tell people all the time, uh, I, I can, because I know him, like you said, I can separate Rashad the athlete from Rashad that we've seen pieces of recently. You know, uh, Rashad is definitely top three most talented guys I've ever seen on the basketball court. Uh, he might be number one or two when I say scores I've ever played against. You know, he's super, yeah. super talented. Um, Things that have been going on with him don't really bother me as much. I feel like that's something that's above me or be as beyond me or my teammates. I feel like we kind of get drug into this mess. And, uh, you know, I really don't have any hard feelings towards Rashad. We haven't spoken, but I don't have any hard feelings towards him. If I see him, I still speak, you know. And it's been documented. Like me and Rashad haven't – we never really talked to each other. We were not great friends, but we, we respected each other. And that, I think that respect is still there to this day. Yeah, he dated a Kardashian for a while. That was pretty cool. Um, all right, so I think we'll move on from the 2005 season. Is it, are you good with that, Tommy? Well, let me ask you a question and follow up on Rashad, not Rashad specific, but talk about how difficult it is to be uh, a young man coming along, super talented athlete. You got all this attention, all this focus. You go to college. Um, you win the biggest event in college basketball and then it's over with and then the NBA becomes a business and some make it and some don't you've been successful overseas talk about that transition um, not in the frame of Rashad McCants but just in the frame of um, young men in general uh, I mean it's not an easy road a lot of people you know you're watching the last dance with Michael Jordan and he talks about um, being who he is and it's not as easy as people think just speak to that yeah, it's, it's, people don't people don't get it. It's the microscope is amazing. Um, even today, in today's days with social media, it's even more magnified. Uh, it's never easy. You have your own dreams, goals, and expectations of yourself. You know, when you're growing up, and you know, you reach these high these pinnacles of athletic promise. You you win championships. You go on and you try to play in the NBA, but people don't understand like you don't just wake up and say, I'm going to play in the NBA today. You don't wake up and just say, I'm going to play overseas. It doesn't happen. It's like there are billions of people in this world all competing for 400 jobs in the NBA. And then after that, there are a billion people in the world competing for, what is it, maybe like, I want to say about six to 600 to 1,000 jobs overseas. So it doesn't just happen. People don't understand the work that goes into it. They don't understand uh, the sacrifice that goes into it. You know, there's been times where I go months without seeing my family. Uh, you know, but that's part of the, that's part of the life I chose. You know what I mean? So it's hard to hear people, you know, downplay another guy for what he did or did not do in his career, especially if they didn't get out there to do it. 
you know, it is, it's very tough. And then, like I said, social media makes everything that much worse because now everybody's accessible to you. You know, you have to, you have to take the good with the bad, you know, you just try to filter it out and continue to push forward and chase your dreams. Yeah. So to kind of touch on that, I mean, you've played all over, it seems globally, you've had a little time with the Cleveland Cavaliers um, and some, some G league or NBDL stuff as well. What has this international career been like? You've bounced all over. It's, it's had to be kind of hard for your family. I mean, just, just looking at your Wikipedia, I mean, you've, you've played places where I don't even know where they are. Um, and I'm sure it's a pretty cool experience, too. I mean, being all across the country and playing a game that you love. So, I mean, where all have you played? What's it been like? I mean, what's that life like kind of signing these, you know, one, two-year contracts, and just kind of, you know, globe hopping, I guess? We love it. We love it, honestly. Um, we get to travel the world for free. You know, that's what we've been doing for quite some time now. I've played in, let's see, I might even miss some places. Spain, yeah. Israel, Italy, Greece, France, Japan. Uh, like I said, I knew I was gonna miss some places. I know I'm missing some things, but we've lived in great places. And uh, I've always signed, maybe like a couple times I signed multi-year deals, but I usually sign one-year deals on purpose uh, just to maximize my own contracts you know i know i know everywhere i go i'm going to outplay my contract so i don't want to be locked into a contract when i can make more money so I, I, i've made it my issue to sign one year deals like all right i'm gonna play here for one year i'm gonna outplay the contract then i'll come back only time i think i didn't do that was uh in france I and mean, we lived in paris for three years i was like yeah we can stick around for a while <laughs> so i signed a multi-year deal in france and stayed in paris uh, let's see, we lived in Paris for three years. We lived in Tokyo for three years. We lived in Athens for a year. We lived in Reggio Emilia for about, Reggio Emilia, Italy, which is like 45 minutes from Milan. Uh, we lived in Madrid, Spain. You know, I've been fortunate to be in great cities. And uh, yeah, you know, we, we, we love that part of it. And I make that a priority. A friend of mine played in Norway. He was like, you need to come hang out when we were younger. And I was like, man, I'd never come back. It's a different lifestyle, man. When you play overseas and you get to experience different cultures and meet new people and things like that, it's a totally different lifestyle. And you, you become accustomed to not being accustomed. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So, like, we go in and we just, you know, we mix in. We mix and mingle. We're not just hanging with the other Americans. We're getting out in the city and meeting new people. And, you know, you'd be surprised how big the Carolina fan base is, especially over out of the country. When I first got to Tokyo, a uh, guy named Patrick Happel. He's in the military. He's in the Air Force. He sent me a message on Twitter one day. He said, hey, if you ever need anything, I'm in Tokyo. I'm a big Carolina fan. He come, come to find out he's from the same hometown as my wife. Uh, I go to Tokyo. We've been great friends ever since. You know, our families know each other. We hang out together uh, in the States and in Japan. And then going back to my rookie year, I played in Spain. We played in uh, Seville. A city in a city called Seville in, in the south of Spain, and I never forget. I didn't know this was happening. This was like I said, this was before social media era and everything. I walk out on the court, and there's a student section. There's a section of kids from Carolina. They were studying abroad in Spain, and they traveled to see my game. And uh, they were about about 20, 25 students. I stayed after we talked. You know, it was just, for me. It was a great feeling. You know, being a rookie, first time out of the out of the country, I was able to sit there and talk to people who knew exactly what I was talking about when I said I missed such or mm. I mean, going to IP three. They understood me. You know, 
you know, things like that are big. And uh, we travel the world, you understand how big Carolina is. And, you know, it's pretty important to a lot of people. What is international basketball like? I mean, I know I think we had Bobby Frazier on the podcast, Tommy, and yep. he was talking about how he didn't know if he was going to get paid or he did the bus rides. And there's obviously a lot of different levels. So, I mean, from that standpoint, you played in the NBA a little bit as well. Like, what is it like day to day in the international leagues? Well, first of all, I tell everybody who hasn't experienced both, the NBA is not real. It's not real life. You know, everything is super blown up. Everything is, you know, you have everything you want at your disposal, like right there and right there. If you say, hey, I want a massage at 2 o'clock in the morning, the team sends somebody to you. You have everything you want. It's not real life. Like, it's like Disneyland. It's the Disneyland of basketball, you know? <laughs> but when you play overseas, you go through some moments, man. Yeah, that Bobby's right. There are times where, like, you might not get paid. I played 14. We went 16 games in a row. We lose a big game uh, at our one of our rivals, and the president just comes in the locker room, like, nobody's getting paid this month. And you're sitting there like, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you, you really have to go through things like this. You know, there's been times where I had to go to management and, I've never been a guy who's been scared to speak up for myself. I don't rely on agents because at the end of the day, agents kind of work with teams. So they're always going to have to place another player. So I would go speak on my own behalf. Like, look, if I don't get my money, I'm leaving. And then I'm going to sue you. And then some teams will try to call you bluff. And I have sued a couple of teams. And then they realize, all right, we can't play with him. So they just go ahead and make sure they do what they're supposed to do. But I've seen horror stories, man. I've seen guys, I've seen teams uh, purposely flood flood players' apartments, purposely cut their heat off in the winter, things like that, just to try to force them to leave so they wouldn't have to pay it. Mm. So it's it's tough. You know, you have to make sure you do your due diligence as far as uh, figuring out how clubs operate, which teams to go to, which teams not to go to. So, you know, right now, like I said, social media is your biggest help. You go on there, you figure out who used to play for that team, send them a message, mm. hey, did you get all your money? Hey, how's the lifestyle? What's going on in this city? Should I go? And then, you know, teams are uh, – guys are very good with sharing that information. Yeah, I mean, I have tons of questions about international basketball. We talked forever. Like, I mean, how hard is it to find places to live? I mean, what is that is that kind of challenging? Because it's completely – you're operating in a completely different world with a completely different language, um, things like that. It's all about how you structure your contract. I've always okay. structured my contract where – the team will go find me an apartment and I have to approve it. You know, they okay. pictures and photos and, you know, everything, all the information I need on an apartment, like what's close, what parks are near, what malls are near, and then we go from there. And then uh, I usually make my decision based off that. Sometimes I get there, if I don't like it, I was like, nah, you got to find me something else. And then I'll move, you know, as simple as that. Because they're, it's, it's on their bill most of the time. They're paying for your living. They give you a car. All you got to do is play basketball. What a... Uh couple questions on that before we move on to the Carolina family aspect of it. What's the level of competition? Compare the level of competition. I know it depends on which league you are over there. And what is the craziest thing that's happened on the court? I mean, you see soccer games where they're lighting flares in the crowd and people acting stupid. What, what's the craziest thing you ever saw in a game you played? Uh, the flares are light. That's nothing. You know, since <laughs> I mean – we had a game where my wife recorded it, and I probably still have it on video somewhere. They set fires in the stands. Set fires in the stands. They're shooting. They're throwing the flares across the court. Um, that's normal. You know what I mean? You just 
fans got whistles, so they're blowing whistles the whole time. So you don't know if it's the ref or the fans. That's all normal. But uh, I think my rookie year was the first time I experienced anything that kind of had me like on edge. Uh, we were playing uh, against Rudy Fernandez. No, yeah, Rudy Fernandez and Ricky Rubio. This was before they came to the NBA. At the time, Ricky Rubio was 15 years old. And uh, we were playing, and one of my teammates fouled Rudy Fernandez hard. And I promise these people threw anything they can get their hands on on the court. They threw chairs. They threw bread. They threw euros. One of the things, <laughs> one of the things people used to do over there, they used to light the euros, hold a lighter to a euro, and then throw it at you. So if it hit you, it would burn you, and it would stick to you. Like that was like that was normal. I seen it happen to people. So, <laughs> You know, I played in games where the whole court was surrounded by riot police or, you know, play games where we had to sit in like a bus stop because the fans are throwing stuff, they're spitting. It's wild, man. It's wild. But Not too much different than PNC, is it? <laughs> no, it's nothing. Bad. It's close. It's close. <laughs> That's right. I some stuff playing abroad, man. And, you know, when those fans are on your side, you love it because I played – when I played in Paris, we played for another team that I ended up playing for the year after uh, called Kashiaka in Turkey. Man, these fans let me have it. I didn't even play that game. Like, I didn't even play. I was I was resting, and, you know, these fans let me have it the entire game, and I'm just sitting on the bench. And then after the game, I laughed at them and pointed, and then they kind of – they cheered me on because I was being a good sport about it. You know, some of the stuff I could have easily took it personal, but I didn't. Then the next year I ended up playing for those same fans, and they loved me, so – What's it like raising a family um, and, ha and having kids and, and with the uh, abroad lifestyle? And it's a chance to promote your book. I know you've written a bo book about, I think, them growing up in, in Paris. Is that right? Yeah. So raising my kids abroad has been fun. I think that's the best form of education for them to actually get out and see different places. Um, so we do a lot of traveling. You know, when we were, let's say when we lived in Turkey, it was nothing for us to hop on a flight and go to Athens and explore the city and things like that. And then the next year, you know, the opportunity arose and I said, you know what, we're going to sign in Athens just because we loved it on our visit. And that's kind of how we do things. Uh, but my kids, they go to school abroad. Um, my daughter, she was pretty much raised in Paris. Then she went to school and she, we did homeschooling in Turkey. And then she went to school in Athens. And then she went to school in Tokyo. So yeah, she's, uh, she's been all around the world. And my, my younger kids, my, my twins are only one year old, so they, they haven't even okay. traveled out of the country yet. But my five-year-old son, he's been raised in Turkey and uh, in Tokyo for the most part. Just incredible to kind of think about that childhood, you know, when they're in college and stuff. You know, yeah, I've lived in, you know, six different countries. Kind of yeah. unbelievable. They love it. And they, 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 they tell me all the time. My daughter, she she's nine, and she's like, "Dad, when I turn eighteen, I'm moving back to Paris." I'm like, "Okay." I mean, what can I do? Yeah. It's hard for me to say no because, you know, my my family, my mother, father, they didn't hold me back from traveling. And like you said, I did write. I started writing a children's book series based on their lives because a lot of kids don't get to travel, and um, I feel like that's a, the biggest form of education is being able to travel and actually indulge in different cultures. So I started a, a book series with Nyla and Nash Take Paris is the first book. The next one to be Nyla and Nash uh, Take Tokyo, which I'll be re releasing within the next week or two. And then I have two other ones that I'm working on. Well, they're finished. I just have to, you know, go ahead and publish them and everything. Where can uh, listeners get those books? Uh, Nyla and Nash Take Paris is on Amazon. Nyla right. and Nash Take 
Paris and Tokyo will both be on their website at it's www.nylanash.com. Great. Nice. That All right, Tom. Yeah, Tom, you want to get into uh, some kind of Carolina family talk here? I mean, this is why we kind of brought you on, um, or wow, wow, how we started talking. You did me on Twitter about the article I wrote based on your tweets. Um, I guess first, I mean, what's it like being part of the Carolina family? We're obviously not in it. We're on the outside. We, we hear a lot about it. We write a lot about it. You know, you have connections with all these different players from all these different eras, and it goes back to Coach Smith and, and even Bill Guthridge and, and Matt Doherty and, and now Roy Williams. Um, I guess to start there, we'll, we'll go from there. What's that like to have that connection with all these players and really what the Carolina family means? Uh, it's amazing. I mean, like literally you go anywhere, you have a guy that's plugged in somewhere. Uh, you have a family member, somebody you can depend on. Uh, we have a group chat. You know, I was just talking in the group chat before I hopped on with you guys. And uh, like today is Marcus Ginyard's birthday. You got guys from all different generations in this group chat talking to each other throughout the thing. We're watching the last dance. We're communicating. We watch games during the season. We're communicating. Um, it's, it's great. It's a great feeling, man, especially. And then you got the GOAT, Michael Jordan. He's not in the group chat, but <laughs> you got Jordan yeah. that connection to him. You know what I mean? Like if I, yeah. see, I see Jordan not in public, I don't have to go to him and say, hey, it's Michael Jordan. He's like, hey, Tar Heel, what's up? And we sit there, we communicate for a minute. And uh, it's a special thing. You know, you got guys like that who are legends in their own right. You know, everybody has done so much, but he's the legend. And, you know, he considers you family. And that's just the way it is throughout the entire family. Is this group chat, how, uh, how many people are on it? We've heard about this group chat before. Because um, it kind of goes through all the different generations. It does, although I can tell you exactly. I want to make sure I don't want to lie to you. We got. Is it what? Is it on WhatsApp? Yeah. Yep. Fifty fifty three, and because okay. you have to, you have to earn your chance to be in the group chat. You know. Yeah. Just because you graduated last year, I mean, you get in the group chat. You know what I mean? So you have yeah. to apply. <laughs> yeah, you have, you have yeah. to. Yeah. Have to pass. Forgot- our guys like Kobe White, I guess Kobe White and Nasir Little probably are guys that aren't yeah. in it yet, right? Too young. Yeah, they're too young right now. I think uh, <laughs> Maktar actually started a group chat, and then, but you got Adam Odo, Elijah, Antoine Jameson, Ed Cota, Brian Reese, Bryce Johnson, Joe Barry, Marcus Ginyard. You know, it's, it's, the list goes on. But, uh, you know, guys who are fresh out, you have to earn those, that, that group chat privilege. Who's the coolest cat in there? Maktar. Magtar. <laughs> yeah, Magtar. Magtar, he's uh he's the guy running a show on the group chat. So if Magtar doesn't send you the invite, then you're not in. Who might uh <laughs> who might Carolina fans not know about that's really uh, like the public perception versus the private perception? Who might be the most different, do you think? Mm-hmm. Might be me. <laughs> <laughs> It might be me. Uh, I'm totally different with some. It depends on what setting you meet me in. I could be totally different. Uh, but I think a lot of guys are opening up because of social media. And we're starting to see their personalities and things like that. But it might be me. Um, great, great. Let's see here. Uh, oh, yeah. How often do you make it back? I mean, when, you're, when the season's going on, are you there for the summer pickup games and that kind of stuff? Or how often are you able to, to come in around the kind of family and around Chapel Hill? Uh, Obviously, you have a house here, it seems. Yeah, I live I live in the Durham Chapel Hill area. Um, so I never missed a summer since I left school. Uh, I'm here all the time. Okay. When I'm playing overseas, I'm home. 
in Chapel. In, in Dur- I live in Durham, but I live right near the Durham Capital Hill line. So I'm at the Smith Center every day. Awesome. Um, any, any good stories from those pickup games? I mean, what's can you give us a glimpse into some epic pickup games or you know, surprise people that show up and what's it like? And you know, we always hear about Rashad McCain. Uh, not, not Rashad, I'm sorry. Uh, Rashid Wallace. Um, you know, different people showing up and it's just incredible. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's normal. You never know who's going to show up. Uh, I remember Kenny Smith brought Blake Griffin one summer. Um, you know, we showed up to play against each other in front of his camp. And here comes Blake Griffin. You know, he's a guy, we have no ties to him. <laughs> he showed up. Uh, another, Alonzo Mourning showed up before. Once again, here's a guy we have no ties to, but they showed up and they played with us. And, uh, you know, the best days, I think, were back in the day when Duke guys used to come over here and play with us. And, uh, we I think the last group that came was the Greg Paulus group. Greg Paulus, uh, Lance, Lance last name, Thomas. Lance. Yeah, there you go. Lance Thomas. Those guys they came over, and that was probably uh, one of the better times for us because we had at the time I was I graduated, so I'm one of, I'm on the former players team, and then we had the current player team, and we let the Duke guys play, and we just took turns smacking them, like we took turns like. Eventually, we just put them off and we played against each other like we normally would do. But uh, that was one of the better days. We just destroyed Duke. I, and then Greg Paulus, I'll never forget, he slapped the floor in our in our practice, you know. And <laughs> it, I mean, when I tell you, everybody in the gym was pissed. Like, it was, it was one, it was like, it was corny. Like, we're playing pickup games, you slap the floor, and you're, yeah. losing. Like, you're losing every pickup game, and you're going to slap the floor in our gym. So they went ahead and took their lumps that day and drove back to camera. One thing, Tommy, uh, I remember when Mike Paulus was playing quarterback at UNC, Greg Paulus came to Keenan Stadium to watch him, and he got booed. I mean, he went to watch his brother play, who played for Carolina, and he got booed and stuff thrown at him. And, like, obviously a lot of people were drunk. People were just killing Greg Paulus, and he was there to watch his brother. It was incredible. What uh, Was Paulus slapping the floor before or after Danny? Uh, ooh, this was before. This was before Danny. This was before the Danny moment. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask you a question about those uh, those pickup games. What do you think changed? Because I graduated in 93, so my senior year was the 93 National Championship team. The Duke guys used to come around all the time. Mm-hmm. And you said the Paulus group's the last group. What do you think's changed over those years? Uh, between, those, between us two in the summer? Well, like, why did Duke come anymore? Uh, I think they're – you know, there's just so much going on with this social media age. I don't think it would be good on either side because it's not us, the players. It's the fans from time to take it too far. You know what I mean? Like, we showed up one time. I was – I got into a Twitter competition with Julius Hodge, and I told him, like, look, we coming to y'all. So, I took some Carolina guys. We went to NC State, and we played, and we come outside. The fans are there. But now, you know, some people take it too far. They don't understand we really are. We're friends, mm-hmm. but – when we're talking about basketball, that's a different different level. We're competing now. So we don't take our, our rivalry too seriously, and some people do. So I think it's safe for them not to come over here and for us not to go over there. But uh, I think if guys can do it and work out together and things like that and we just keep it under wraps, I think there's no issues. But I don't know if they're allowed to anymore, honestly. Uh, it's been a few incidents. Um, I just don't think they're allowed to come over here uh, just to make sure everything stays safe. I could I could talk about these pickup games forever. I mean, the stories are incredible. I think fans love because there's such secrecy around the pickup games. So we don't know when they happen, exactly where they are, when they are. 
So I mean, I could talk for hours about this. All right. So the reason we, we got connected was, was your comments on, um, you know, who's going to be the next coach at UNC. Roy Williams is 69 years old. He's not going to be the head coach forever. There's some guys that, you know, potentially are kind of r- rising up the coaching ranks. What's your opinion on that? Obviously, you want to keep it in the, the Carolina family and have a connection to UNC. Uh, I guess give you the open floor that I kind of start the conversation. Uh, first of all, I don't know. I, I, you know, people say Coach Williams don't have much time left. I don't believe it. I mean, this guy, he won't sit down. I mean, now he got his beard going, so he might think he's tough now if he can do anything. But uh, I don't see Coach Williams going anywhere anytime soon. And like you said, there are a ton of guys coming up this coaching tree. Uh, you know, I don't want to get the naming guys. I don't want to leave guys out. But there's a lot yeah. of qualified coaches who will be available. And, uh, you know, holding the Carolina job is, is, is tough. I never coached in Carolina, but I know – what goes into the process after playing there and being and I've sat in, in meetings with Coach Williams and his staff and you know watched them great film. I, I've I've been around enough in the in the summertime to understand what they have to deal with, you know, when it comes to fans and media and parents and all that other stuff. I understand it takes a special type of person. And like you said, I do want that um I would love to see it stay within the Carolina family. When I say within the Carolina family, that's anybody who came under Dean Smith under Dean Smith's uh, coach, I'm sorry, excuse me, came under coach Dean Smith's uh, tree. Yeah, under his teaching. So, for example, you asked me about Jerry Hass before. Is Jerry Hass part of the Carolina family? Yes, because Coach Smith, Coach Williams, Coach Williams groomed Jerry Hass. They all come under that Coach Smith umbrella. And, uh, you know, it might people don't understand this or why I say that because I had a relationship with Coach Smith. Uh, my relationship started when I first came to Carolina. I talked to Coach Smith quite often when I wasn't drafted. And I remember going home to my apartment. The very first phone call that I received was from Coach Smith. Coach Smith called my house. And my wife, well, my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, gave me the phone and said, uh, Coach Smith is on the phone. I wants to talk to you. I was like, no, nah, you can't be Coach Smith. Like, why would he be calling my apartment phone? And how did he get the number? You know what I mean? And then I get the phone. It's really Coach Smith. So I have a relationship with Coach Smith. So I understood what he meant to Carolina and what he meant to the Carolina family. So people who are coming under his umbrella, uh, as long as they keep his morals and his values and, and, you know, teach the game the way he taught the game, then I think it's, it'd be great. But I would love to see it in family because it takes a special person to hold that job. I mean, a, a guy coming from the outside might not understand why, for example, myself, I'm, what's this, 15 years removed? They might not understand why I'm in the Smith Center at three o'clock in the morning because I'm working out. You know, that's my time. Like everybody who knows, have a, know I have a odd workout schedule, you know, because I have children. So I might go in at three in the morning. I might go in at one o'clock in the morning and I have the music cranked up to the, to the top. But they, the guys who've been through Carolina, they understand I earned that right to do the things that I do within the Smith Center. Nothing crazy, you know, just, you know, just speaking from a basketball aspect, not doing anything crazy, but I've earned that right. You know what I mean? And uh, some guys might, some somebody from the outside might not understand that. You know what I mean? Give a Go ahead. Sorry. Do you have a key to the Smith Center? I uh, have passcode. I use my gotcha. code in my hand, and I can get in at any door. I can do whatever I need to do in the Smith Center, as long as I clean up after myself and I move gotcha. on. And I, I'm not the only one. This is all former players. We all have these same privileges. Yeah. So imagine the guy coming in from the outside, not understanding uh, what we've been through 
as a program, what we've built as a program, and shutting that off to us. You know what I mean? But, you know, by the time Coach Williams retires, I'll be done playing basketball, but I'm pretty sure I'm going to want to go through the Smith Center one day and just give a quick tour. You know what I mean? You know, people call me all the time. Hey, can you get me to Smith Center so I can show me around? Sometimes I don't do it, but, you know, if, I, if I'm close to you, I might. And, you know, I hold that very near and dear to me because, you know, I gave my blood, sweat, and tears to the program. And I love to go in. Like now, my kids get to go into the Smith Center and they see my pictures everywhere. They see Uncle Sean. They see Uncle Jackie. They see Uncle Dave. Uh, they see Bryce Johnson. They're getting, they're meeting these people and they know them on a first name basis. So that means a lot to all of us as former players. A lot of people talk about that. Um, people say, well, somebody would have to have an understanding of the Carolina family. I don't think you can unless you were in it. Um, exactly. I agree. And so my question is this, and we won't throw out names, but there are a lot of guys out there, Wes, Jerry now. Um, in your opinion, what has to happen or what sort of qualifications does a Carolina guy have to have to be considered for the coach to, to succeed Roy Williams? I mean, it can't just be whoever that played for Carolina, obviously. Oh, no, no, no. You don't hand the job over to a guy. You don't give somebody who's unqualified the job. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You have to give it to a guy who understands, like you said, who understands Carolina family, who understands Carolina basketball, and who's had success using the Carolina system in another setting. That, that, that's my opinion. You know, if you, if you installed everything you learned in Carolina into another setting and won, now it's time you slowly move up and then you one day possibly become the head coach of North Carolina. That's just my opinion, you know. Uh, like I said, I just – I view it from a totally different perspective than most. But, uh, you know, like you said, there's guys on the way and they've been winning, they've been successful, and uh, it's only a matter of time before Coach Williams – well, I ain't going to say that because, like I said, I don't think this guy's going anywhere anytime soon. But, you know, when the time comes, I think there will be guys who are groomed and ready to go. Do you think that folks learned a lesson maybe from Matt Darty? Uh, well, I, the, my question then would be, what was that lesson? Because you remember under Matt Doherty, they were pretty successful. You know, he was the coach of the year. You know, everybody said, oh, the 8-20 and 20 year. But do people really understand or pay attention to what went into that 8-20 and 20 year? Julius Peppers uh, and Ron Curry decided they were going to focus on football. So that's two big boys, that's a point guard and your power forward center, that's gone. Joe Forte leaves early. Uh, Brenda Haywood graduates. Uh, what else? It's a lot that went into that. You know, you can't just put all that blame on Coach Doherty. Um, it was, he, he inherited, he had something good, but then when guys started to leave, there were, no, there were not enough pieces to make up for what was lost, you know? Right. And that led to the eight and 20 year, you know, Jason Capel and Chris Lang as seniors, they're coming in. Uh, they have to carry the weight of the team as well as prepare to be professional athletes, you know. So it was tough. It was a lot going on. And then, between, and then think of, and then after that, we lost our entire sophomore class. We had no sophomores. Like, it was crazy. So it was a lot that went into that. So I would never just blame Matt Doherty for those years at that time. Yeah, and I always say that. I mean, Matt Doherty recruited your class and recruited the uh, the class that followed you, which were the building blocks and the stars on the 2005 team. So a huge role in, in that national championship. All right, we're gonna get out here on on this. We've, we've kept you way too long, but the 2019, sorry, the 2020 21 season. 
uh, that roster. What do you kind of think of what they have? They're bringing in six players. I'm sure you've watched a lot of the games from last year. Harrison Brooks, Armando Baycott, Leaky Black are back, along with some reserves. And, of course, they add the number two uh, signing class in the 2000 and in 2020. So what do you think about the roster and this team coming up uh, next season? I think they're going to be very deep and very talented. But I don't, you know, I don't want people to put the expectations of winning the national championship on them. It's, it's too early. Uh, you know, you got six new guys to get, you know, mixed into the new Carolina system, and they're going to have to make some changes to their games, and they have to understand how to play within the Carolina system. It's going to be tough. They're going to have, they're going to hit some bumps along the way, um, but they have a chance to be a very good team. Now, championship good. You know, we have to wait and see come. Uh, January, February, you know, can they make a run at their after ACC tournament, at the ACC play? But uh, they're going to be very talented. And uh, the guys they got coming back, they got some great pieces. Uh, Garrison and Orlando are going to be great down low. I anticipate Leakey being being better than what he's been. Uh, Leakey's always been my dark horse. I think Leakey is very, very, very talented. Uh, you know, the injuries have been bothering him. We um, have, a, you know, those other guys are have to just blend in. And uh, I think they'll be pretty successful. Can a freshman point guard at Carolina get over that hump for a national championship? Describe how hard that is. Uh, it's, it would be tough, but it's also tough to say no because you see guys who, are, who did a great job as freshmen, like Kobe White. Uh, I think Kobe kind of even took the bar and raised it a little bit higher from Ray Felton and Ty Lawson and those guys because – he didn't play like a freshman at all, in my eyes. You know what I mean? It's, it's a lot going on with that. But uh, it depends on what type of point guard you are. Kobe was more of a scoring point guard. Uh, it got everybody involved second. Or everybody, most of those guys usually are pass-first guards who can score. You know, it was reverse for Kobe. But uh, as far as winning, get them over the hump and winning a championship, it would be tough. But uh, I never say never. You know, I think it's a chance. All right, Jawad, are you good, Tommy? Yeah, I'm good, man. I, I like like Ross said, I could ask you a million questions yeah. about everything else, but I appreciate you taking time out of your day to do this. Um, hopefully, no you know, down the road, maybe we can get up again. Yeah, if you ever need me again, just hit me up, man. I'm not doing nothing. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, this is a chance to get away from the kids for a second. So. <laughs> this right. is awesome. I mean, t- touched on tons of stuff, and we really appreciate your time, and I think our listeners would really like this. And, uh, yeah, thanks again. No problem. Thanks for having me. Have a good day. Yeah, All right. It, That's a wrap on this special podcast. Hope you enjoyed it. If you haven't checked it out, check it out on the YouTube channel, Inside Carolina YouTube channel. Subscribe to that. Get all those notifications when we have content there. If you like this podcast, get on iTunes and leave a rating. We're going to try to really get those ratings up so we can uh, – Interact more with our fans of the Inside Carolina podcast that way, on Twitter, on the message boards. Um, So many different ways to socially interact, even during this quarantine life and as we come out of this quarantine life. So give us a rating on iTunes. Subscribe on uh, iTunes and the YouTube channel. We'll be around all summer for this great content. Many thanks to Ross Martin and, of course, Jawad Williams for taking time out to join us. Hope you liked it. See you around. Thanks for listening to another podcast from InsideCarolina.com. Brought to you by T-Shirt.com. Where to go for your next Tar Heel gear purchase.